Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey fellow time travelers, as always it's great to have you with me. Um before we start as always, I need and want to say thanks to all the people who show their support for all these podcast offerings that, that Paul and I work on uh, by supporting and subscribing to my Patreon uh, site. It, it, it keeps everything else going. Uh, so all that help on the Patreon side of things makes the love letters to the British Isles and to the world possible. So a huge thank you to, to everyone who's made a contribution and keeps making contributions. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to join, go to patreon.com, look for me by name, Neil Oliver, sign up, part with some cash, become a member, and there's weekly vodcasts, uh, Q&A, all sorts of things going on. More than anything else, it's access to a community of like-minded, curious thinkers. Okay, enough about me. It's time to strap ourselves into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Eternal life, life after death. Now, no one was pushing that before, but for obvious reasons it appealed. Murder, machinations and ruthless leaders all manoeuvring for control. Barbarians at the gates, usurpers within. Fickle fate and the brutal nature of power writ large. In the city of York, the next Roman emperor is proclaimed. Visions, crosses and a loyal army sweep him to dominance. Power shifts eastwards. Christianity is accepted and the world turns on its axis. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future... I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. We saw the Roman Empire rise to become a superpower in the last episode, cementing its dominance across a great swathe of Europe, Africa and Asia. Where are we this week? Morning, Paul. Well, we're staying with Rome this week, uh, so get ready for more ruthless infighting. It's 306 AD and we're off to meet a remarkable leader who over many years battled his way to become the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. But we're picking up the story far from the heart of power in Italy. We're in the north of England, in the city of York. That very central of English, British cities, I often think York should be where Parliament sits because it's 
right smack in the middle of the country and relatively accessible, but that's a story for another day. Uh, so, we're dealing with uh, a cast of characters. Uh, primarily, we're interested in Constantine, uh, who was a Roman. He happened to be in Britannia with his dad uh, when his dad died. And uh, he, Constantine, was hailed. That was the that was the way of things in those days. Hailed as emperor by the by the army. Well, by his father's army, actually. Uh, and during the third and some of the fourth century uh, AD, that was the way of things. It wasn't it wasn't really effectively the, the Senate and the people of Rome that that picked emperors. It was the army. Anyhow. To get down to some of the specifics, if you were to go to uh, the Tully House Museum in Carlisle, right up in the north of England, right close by the the border with Scotland, um, I couldn't swear to this thing being on display right this moment, but when I was there uh, a few years ago, it was on display. It's a a, a thin slab, thin tall slab of stone, it's a man height, and on, on one end of it, engraved, not very neatly, but engraved into one end. Uh, In Latin, you have, for the emperor Caesar Marcus Aurelius Mausius Carosius Pius Felix Invictus Augustus. Uh, This is specifically describing the reign as emperor of a usurper. Uh, Known, that whole long list of names there, he was known as Carosius, and he declared himself Roman Emperor in AD 286 and he, he hung on in there as as an emperor of sorts uh, until he was murdered in 293 so he, he did not too badly in, in the scheme of things at the other end of the slab engraved again it says for Flavius Valerius Constantinus most noble Caesar and what you've got there is recycling re- reuse for a while, the slab would have been would have been upright with Carosius's name in the sun, declaring him as as emperor. So the the slab is like a, a signpost or something. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's some some that was probably done by soldiers to acknowledge that their belief in this individual as emperor. But Carosius was murdered in two nine three, and he just upended the slab so that the dead guy's name's now buried in the ground and it's Constantius that that's now declared. So it's quite it's quite funny in a way. It's like, you know, how quickly we we forget, how quickly they forget, or or how quickly people are instructed to forget. Uh the the dead guy was was being buried literally uh out of sight in the soil, uh never to be mentioned again. So at that, at that point, in the middle of the 3rd century AD, say f- for about half a century, from about 235 to 284, the Roman Empire in its entirety, the whole vast swathe of it, was struggling because there were, well, there were, there were barbarians without and there were usurpers within. So they were under pressure from others, non-Romans, pressure beyond the, the, the boundaries of the empire from outsiders wanting in. 
uh, and and some of them wanted to you know supplant Rome and take over and and, and all the rest. But there was also domestic trouble, as is evidenced by you know Carausius being able to declare himself emperor. He was a usurper. He wasn't. Um, he was a naval a naval commander, uh, and he wasn't in the line of succession. He just saw his chance and took it. This this was some of the nature of things. During the the third century AD, it, it was it was becoming a bit fragmented and a little bit chaotic. So there's there's like power groups all over the empire all yeah, fighting each other. Yeah, and ambitious characters, you know, seeing an opportunity and going for it. You know, yeah. seeing a weakness somewhere uh, mm-hmm. and and rushing in like floodwater and, and taking advantage of a of a briefly rising tide. And, and in fact, it's, it's no exaggeration to say, although the empire still had a lot of years to run. At that point, it was close to collapse at times. So in 284 AD, Diocletian became emperor. He was like an, an official Roman emperor, elected and proclaimed in the, in the traditional way. But he came in and started reforming. He started uh, you know, trying to stabilise everything, and, he, and he, he had some success. He declared that he would he kind of split the empire into into two, east and west. He said that he Diocletian would rule in the east, and his colleague Diocletian had come up through the ranks of the cavalry, uh, and another cavalry officer Maximian would rule in the west. So that that, that was the the empire in two halves, and furthermore, in hopes of making it even more stable. Each had a, a nominated Caesar as his junior, a kind of a backup, a kind of a deputy emperor, and this would all this the, the, the Caesar in each case was going to succeed. You know, when the time was passed for the emperor, the Caesar would come through. So that was the, that was the plan. Uh, in the east, Diocletian had Galerius, and in the west, Maximian had Constantius. Right now, this is the Constantius who is the name that ends up as the the refresh of that slab. So he was the nominated Caesar for uh, Maximian, who was the emperor in the West. This is the time remembered by Roman historians as the Tetrarchy, which is to say the rule of four. Tetrarchy. Four four men uh, sharing the the rule of uh, the empire between them. Constantius was... He knew what he was about. He was very vigorous in imposing uh, his rule. Carosius, as I said before, had been a, a naval commander, had seen an opportunity, had gone for it. But Constantius put him under pressure and sought to take control. And it was in that atmosphere that Carosius was murdered, actually by one of his own advisers. Okay, so there's a lot of dates here, but you've just got to sort of run with it. In 303 AD, Diocletian, the one who had made these reforms began persecuting Christians. This was not new. Christians were routinely persecuted as a sect, as a heresy, as a as as wrong think. Uh, and Diocletian was a fairly enthusiastic, bloodthirsty persecutor of Christians. Has to be said, this was actually, as things would turn out, would be the last time that the Romans organised an empire-wide persecution of Christians. That went on for two years. He stood down in 305 uh, and was succeeded, as was the plan, by Galerius, who had been his Caesar, his junior and his nominated successor. 
and Galerius was just as bad in terms of uh, persecuting uh, and making life miserable or impossible for Christians in the empire. In Asia and Egypt, for example, the persecution was especially cruel and relentless. A lot of people were killed and driven out. Another chancer, Electus, declared himself emperor. Um, so you could you get a sense of how chaotic it is. You know, there's 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 real emperors, real Caesars, and then there's there's, there's people on, on the make trying to usurp and, and take control for themselves. So Electus declared himself emperor, and Constantius defeated him and killed him, along with every last one of the mercenaries that uh, that Electus had paid to fight for him. So he was a he was a businesslike and thorough uh, fighting man, Constantius, but he would not persecute Christians. He he paid lip because obviously this is a command that's coming down from on high, and he paid lip service to it insofar as he did, or under his orders, some Christian churches were burned, and books were burned, but historians are are broadly of the opinion that he was doing just enough to stay on the right side of his of the line in, in terms of maintaining his position, but his heart wasn't in it. And it, it was subsequently claimed that uh, Constantius was a kind of a secret Christian, that he had he had acquired the faith, he converted at some point, though he kept it quiet. Uh, legend has it that he was married to Helena, later Saint Helena, who's remembered by history as having found the true cross while on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But uh, as is so often the case with these stories, there's no proof there's no proof of any discovery of any such thing. But that's the story that's associated with Constantius, that he wasn't persecuting Christians because he secretly was one, or at the very least was sympathetic to the idea. So Constantius had a son, Constantine. Constantine that I mentioned right at the top of the story. Now, in the normal run of things, he might have expected to have been made his father's Caesar. But Galerius supported another candidate and so Constantine because he was not his father's Caesar found himself in a slightly uncomfortable situation and he, he made a run for it he ran to Gaul to be with his father to be under his father's protection so Constantine is now with Constantius Constantius invades Britannia at this point uh, to have a go at the Picts Roman emperors periodically took a pop at the Picts uh, and Constantius and Constantine and the army, they were all resting at York when Constantius, the father, the senior, was taken seriously ill and died. But while he was on his deathbed, Constantius secured the support. He, he, he persuaded the senior officers in, in the army that in the event of his death, they would proclaim Constantine as emperor. Th this happened. Constantius died and in 306 AD Constantine was proclaimed as the next emperor. So he's proclaimed the emperor but he's not the emperor yet until he until he gets the yeah, army involved. It's a, it's a it's a game of thrones isn't it effectively you know it's one thing to say or, or, or even have your army or or or, you, or the portion of the army which you control declare you as emperor. You know, but that's big talk. It's got to be backed up. Uh, but they were they were in York. I find this fascinating. You, you, obviously, with the Roman Empire, you, you think of Rome, you think of the Med. But um, I think you're usually invited to think of Rome and Britain as a bit of a backwater. 
Yeah. You know, a bit of a bit of a poor man's role, <laughs> uh, which is not actually the case, but it, it certainly it's certainly the feeling you tend to get. So I, I find it fascinating that a, that an emperor, top dog, was proclaimed in York. In, the Romans didn't refer to it as York; they called it Eboracum or Eboracum, which is the place of the yew trees, which is quite poetic. Uh, but this is this in itself is a moment. This elevation, this proclamation, this acclamation of Constantine as emperor would change the course of the Roman Empire, and as collateral, it would change the shape and the course of the entire world. And it happened. It happened in York. I just love that uh, legend. The same legend that that has Constantius as a secret. Christian has Constantine raised Christian by his mum Helena. Uh, you, you had to keep these things secret. He would have professed belief in the Roman pantheon and the Roman gods and the Roman way of doing things, you know, sacrifice and all the rest. But the the legend has it that in his heart he believed in uh, in Christianity. He spends no less than twenty years. Constantine securing his position and he does it as a soldier not as a politician. He was a man of action really rather than a man of you know Machiavellian politicking. He was a man of his time say the historians uh, which is to say amongst other things men like Constantine in what's described as the late classical period a lot of them were flirting with the fashionable and I don't think that's you know too light a word to use it was quite fashionable to consider one god Uh, capitalise that if you will capital O capital G the one god that idea which was coming to the fore and and, well had been there in in further in places further east Uh, you've certainly amongst you know the the, the Hebrews amongst the the, the Jewish faith uh, and, and others there was this notion that rather than you know dozens of gods you know, a, a pantheon. There was just one. And by the late classical period, educated, uh, high-ranking men like Constantine were, you know, were happy to flirt around that idea. So he's in York, which is no use to him. Really, he's, he's out on the fringe of things, and he has to get back into the back to the centre to properly establish his position as the as the Western Emperor. And it's at this point then. Uh, on the 28th of October, 312, actually, uh, that we get the moment of the of the greatest importance. He's at this moment. Constantine, with his army, is on the banks of the River Tiber outside Rome, uh, and he's about to confront a rival, the rival Maxentius, who also considers himself emperor in the West. So it's the 28th of October, 312, and that. That night, Constantine sleeps and has a dream. You might better describe it as a vision. He dreams, first of all, about the sun, which is fair enough because Saul, the sun god, would have been part of Constantine's uh, understanding of, of the source of power from a Roman perspective. But he sees the sun and then superimposed upon it a cross, you know, the, 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 the Christian cross and the words uh, in hoc signo vincus, which means in this sign prevail, which he interprets as meaning that if he and his men fight literally under the sign of the cross, they will win the battle at Milvian Bridge. 
And so he orders, he wakes up and he, he has his men paint crosses on their shields. And victory's theirs. They defeat Maxentius and his forces and by the following day, 29th of October, 312, they're in Rome. And this is a moment almost like no other in a sense. Because of Constantine's uh, sensibilities, he, he declares that there will be no more persecution of Christians and Christianity. On the contrary, Christianity as a faith will be protected, made safe. But this was not unusual. Like many men of the period, he he wasn't baptised, didn't get baptised until he was on his deathbed. But that was the way of things for a lot of these characters at that time. Uh, But but nonetheless, although he wasn't baptised, he was acting to protect the Christian faith, the Christian religion. And so after the Battle of Milvian Bridge on the 28th of October 312 AD, Christianity becomes the official accepted faith of the Roman Empire. Now, I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, we've discussed before how Christianity was the product of a tiny sect of Jews persecuted, like all the sects, in Judea, under the heel of Rome. A tiny sect amongst sects. And they uniquely said that their leader, their teacher, their rabbi had died on a cross and come back to life three days later. And somehow or other, this message, this idea, took root, stubborn root, and lasted. But it was persecuted for for decades and centuries to come. And yet, and yet, by lasting until 312 and the time of Constantine, and his victory at the Battle of Milvian Bridge with an army protected by crosses. Suddenly, the world's their oxter. <laughs> it's all different from this, from this moment on. Constantine went on to... He switched his capital to Byzantium. What, well, the, what, had, what was Byzantium, which was a, a, a trading settlement, but it was renamed subsequently Constantinople. Constantinople in his honour. So he uh, goes east? He goes east, yes. He, 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 makes his, he, makes his, he makes his empire in the east. He, uh, in 325 AD, he summons, orders, brings together the first ecumenical council, which is to say the Council of Nicaea. Within the Christian faith, there were all sorts of sects within it, and there were all sorts of, uh, you know, big men, uh, big thinkers, fathers of the church who had different and sometimes conflicting ideas about what it was to be Christian. It, specifically, there was a lot of bickering about the precise details of the relationship between God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. There were those that said that Jesus Christ had been there from the beginning. He was as eternal and as omnipresent as God. And that likewise the the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from God and from Jesus, and, 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 is, and is, is basically how God makes contact with the people, with, with humans like you and me. So there were, there were those who said that the, the Trinity were all equal. They'd all been there from the beginning, from before the beginning. They were always there. But then there were, there were others who suggested that God was the daddy and that his son, Jesus, although he was super special, he hadn't been there from the beginning. He had, been, he had come from God. 
And that, that effectively would have suggested that Jesus was slightly less important than God. He was a product of God. So, I mean, that's a bit of a butchered summarising of part of what was going on at that time. But suffice it to say, the Council of Nicaea was brought together to try and settle it. And the, the Nicene Creed, Creed's interesting. Creed, originally, has an interesting etymology. It, it refers to something that was broken into two, maybe, a, I don't know, I suppose maybe like a piece of ceramic or, a, or, or an object that could be broken into two parts. Then one person could have one another, and the two could be brought together to prove that the person was who he said he was. So that was a creed. And then then that word goes through various sort of evolutions and becomes it, it comes to mean a symbol. But that, that's not precisely how it started out. But So you've got the, the Nicene Creed, which the, they come away from it, they have the big debate, and they, they come away from it having agreed uh, the, about the Trinity, about the nature of the relationship between God, Jesus Christ, and the, the Holy Spirit. And this forms... This is the, the agreed foundation of what becomes the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and even also the Anglican Church, eventually in, in much, much later, and the Protestant Church. All of these take their understanding of the Trinity from the Nicene Creed, which was the product of the Council of Nicaea way back in 325, which was summoned by Constantine. So this is his enduring impact or influence upon Christianity. You know, there's credo. Credo means I believe. It's a, it's a short form. And that's from the start of the declaration of the Nicene Creed, which starts, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. That's the Nicene Creed. Um, so, this is this is this is the impact of of Constantine, who basically runs for his life to where his father Constantius is in Gaul, is part of a campaign in Britannia when his father dies unexpectedly, and there at York, this individual is proclaimed emperor, and, and, and after twenty years secures that position, and along the way, in amongst it all, he makes or in, or ensures that Christianity that product of the tiny fringe sect of what we regard as the, the Holy Land became the established, accepted faith of the Roman Empire. And Christianity, as everyone knows, as anyone knows, changed the direction of the world, altered Earth on its axis, you might say. All of it is bound to and bound by the impact of Emperor Constantine proclaimed emperor in dear old York. And so when he when he became the emperor, was the rule of four ended at that point? He became the, the He became overall. dominant. He became a dominant force. I mean, the, the, the Roman Empire went, you know, went through various flux uh, and the, you know there were all there were other uh, competing factions and, and and individuals, but Constantine, you know he you know he he rose and became predominant, moved his capital. He rather than in Rome, he moved himself across to the east, established the city that was eventually named Constantinople in his honour, and he was able to exert that kind of influence over the whole shebang. And would he have been? 
not scared of the Christians, but did he see them as a, you know, a force or? That's an excellent question. I think by that point, I think men of vision, men with, you know, with some nous and foresight could see that Christianity was a coming faith because it, it, it appealed to many, many people because of this unique selling point it had, which said that if you followed Jesus Christ, if you accepted the one God and Jesus Christ as his only begotten son, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should, should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Nobody had offered that before. This was to Jew and Gentile. All you had, all you had to do was accept Jesus and if you accepted Jesus into your heart, then you were guaranteed eternal life, life after death. Now, no one was pushing that before. And for obvious reasons, it appealed. And once word of that message got out, it, it was gaining ground. And it may well, apart from anything else, I mean, who's to say? Maybe Constantine was a, you know, was a man of faith. Maybe he genuinely believed in the Christian faith and and acted as he did to protect the faith that he believed in or maybe he was a, a sharp tactical operator maybe he was a politician as well as a soldier and saw that you know you know he wanted Christians inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent <laughs> pissing in so he just hedged his bets Rome was pragmatic. The Roman Empire was pragmatic. Part of the secret of their success was was seeing that you didn't need to crush uh, alternative ideas. It, it, it was better to kind of perform a sleight of hand and make it that, oh, that's the same as ours all along. You, you know, as they did with uh, at Bath. You know, I keep mentioning that as an example, but you know, when they turned up in Bath and the locals were worshipping Sulis, a goddess of, of health and well-being and wisdom. Well, the, well the, the Romans had their own goddess of wisdom, Minerva. And so they, 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 they spun it so that they persuaded the locals, well, it's the same person. She's the same. So, so they called Bath Aqua Sulis Minerva, the waters of, of Sulis Minerva. And, and so they, they, they brought them in, you know, a bit like, um, you know, a pearl growing around something at the, at the centre. They just kind of assimilated where they went. And it may well be the case that someone like Constantine was, was doing something of that sort, where he was thinking, it's a win-win situation. Let's just, let's just acquire that as well. Add it to the toolbox. You know, but you know, who's to say? Maybe, maybe it wasn't cynical at all. Maybe he was just a man of faith, and and that made all the difference for the for the Christians. But Christianity made all the difference to the world. The endless tug of war between church and state, a battle of wills, fighting to gain the upper hand in the mastery of the people. The balance between the haves and have-nots. Mayhem, massacre and excommunication. Kneeling before a bishop asking for forgiveness. In the hard-boiled power stakes, the church proves it holds sway. Next time in my love letter to the world.
To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Altorp Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs>